Welcome to DLA Piper's At the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. For decades, scientists have studied the seemingly endless possibilities of custom-made messenger RNA or mRNA. Kathy Fernando, Head Vice President Worldwide of Clinical Operations at Pfizer, spent her early bench science career working with mRNA technology and had a front row seat to the creation of the COVID-19 vaccine. In this episode, DLA Piper's Dr. Lisa Hale talks with Dr. Fernando about the study of mRNA and how COVID-19 catalyzed its advancement. This episode was recorded on August 13th, 2021. Hi, I'm Lisa Hale, and I'm a partner at DLA Piper specializing in patent law. I work with biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies to protect their new diagnostics and therapeutics. I am pleased to welcome our guest today, Kathy Fernando, Head Vice President Worldwide of Clinical Operations at Pfizer. Before we get started, I'd like to give Kathy a few minutes to introduce herself. Kathy? Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate the invitation to spend some time with you and your audience today. As you mentioned, I head worldwide research development and medical operations at Pfizer, and I also recently took on the role to head mRNA scientific planning and operations. Great. So before we dive into today's topic a little bit further, I wanted to give the audience a brief overview of messenger RNA and messenger RNA technology, which we will refer to today as mRNA. mRNA therapeutics are not the same as small molecules like traditional pharmaceutical drugs, for example, antibiotics that people are more familiar with. And they're also not biologics that we've heard a lot about, like insulin or antibodies like Herceptin, which is used to treat breast cancer. Rather, mRNA therapeutics provide a set of instructions for the body, and these instructions direct cells in the body to make proteins. DNA, which most people have heard about, is a double-stranded molecule in our cells that stores genetic instructions needed to make proteins, which are vital to every function in the body. But messenger RNA, on the other hand, or mRNA, also plays a vital role in our bodies because it's responsible for protein synthesis. Unlike DNA, mRNA is single-stranded, and it carries the genetic code from the DNA in a cell's nucleus to something called the ribosomes, which are the cell's protein-making machinery. For decades, scientists have dreamed about the seemingly endless possibilities of custom-made mRNA. Researchers understood its role in cells, but their efforts to take advantage of mRNA technology has had many starts and stops. The idea of using synthetic mRNA and administering it to people and have cells in the body produce a therapeutic protein of choice has been exciting, but not without problems. Until the recent global pandemic, no mRNA vaccine or drug has ever won approval from a regulatory agency worldwide. So with that background, I'd like to ask you, Kathy, I know you spent your early bench science career actually working with mRNA technologies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that work and the uses that you envisioned for mRNA at that time? Sure. Happy to do so. So I'm going to take you back to a couple of decades ago. I think it was the year 2000, and I had just finished my undergrad degree in India in biotechnology, and I was thinking about the next step. 
And at that time, I became very interested in doing a PhD focused on HIV vaccine development. The virus had been ravaging countries or continents such as Africa and Asia, and it was still very much a key unmet need. So I joined the University of Pennsylvania because they had a great HIV program and first started off working in more of a traditional vaccine approach lab. It was a fairly large lab, well-funded. And at one of our journal club meetings, I happened to meet a professor by the name of Drew Weissman. And Drew was looking at a very interesting approach to HIV vaccines, and that was using messenger RNA. And at the time, it was quite nascent. Not many people thought it would work. There were a lot of challenges to it, namely when you gave messenger RNA to an animal or human, there was a strong immune response to the mRNA itself. And that needed to be overcome. Stability was an issue. So for example, if you put mRNA in the test tube on the bench, it degraded fairly rapidly. So there were a lot of challenges that needed to be overcome, but that's also what made it very exciting as a graduate student to work on something really new. So I did my PhD in Drew's lab. I was his first graduate student. And you fast forward a couple of decades later, Drew's work, along with the work of Katie Carrico, who is also at Penn, formed the basis or contributed substantially to the scientific foundation for both the Pfizer as well as the Moderna mRNA vaccine. So it's been really a pleasure to see Drew's hard work come over the finish line in this way, and also the intersection of being able to see the Pfizer scientists and the hard work they put in along with BioNTech and Moderna colleagues to get this done. And I will say it's not often that a new modality declares itself in the middle of a pandemic, So that was what I think made this even more phenomenal. It was the first vaccine approach to be approved for COVID-19 with a best-in-class profile. So 90 plus percent efficacy and a good tolerability profile. It's really amazing to think 20 years ago that this is where you started your scientific career. And many of us in the field will never have a success like the one that you've been able to see with technology that you started with. Your background is really fascinating and interesting. Prior to COVID-19, my understanding is that Pfizer had actually entered into a partnership with the company BioNTech with respect to mRNA technology. Can you give a little bit of background on that relationship and the history with Pfizer and this small mRNA company? That's right, Bisa. You've done your research very well. We did start off the BioNTech mRNA collaboration with Flu, and the reason for that is When you think about some of the key challenges with a flu vaccine, it's that people need this vaccine annually and there's a strain change. It's a virus that mutates. So every season you could be dealing with a different predominant strain. And at some point, you don't want to wait to develop a vaccine until it's evident what strain is existing in the community. So at some point prior to that, you have to make a call and start developing your vaccine. And the shorter the vaccine development time, 
the closer you can get to the actual season. So that was one of the benefits with mRNA where you can have that shorter development time because once you know the sequence that you want for the mRNA, you can just go out and make it. It's very different for say a protein vaccine or even a small molecule drug. There's a different process that needs to happen in order to develop the drug or vaccine itself. So that's why the initial collaboration over there was focused on flu. But when the pandemic hit, there was great mutual agreement between Pfizer and BioNTech that the same reasons that made mRNA a good choice for flu could make it a great choice for COVID-19. So there was a desire to expand that collaboration to focus on COVID-19, and that played out very well. And correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Katie Carrico, who you had collaborated with at Penn, wasn't she involved with BioNTech? That's right. Katie actually started working for BioNTech at some point and has played a critical role in the work for mRNA vaccines at that company. That's really interesting. Maybe to digress just a minute, because something you mentioned, and this might be helpful for the audience, but you mentioned with the mRNA technology, development time might be shorter, which obviously in a pandemic situation was critical. And it was different from maybe a typical protein-based approach for a vaccine. Would you mind just giving a brief overview on what some of the other types of vaccines have been in the past and even as related to some COVID vaccines that aren't mRNA-based? Yeah, it's a great question. So the other type of vaccine that exists is a protein vaccine. Although for that, it isn't as straightforward as mRNA, where mRNA, you put together a code, essentially. So when you know what code you desire, you can essentially synthesize the corresponding DNA and make RNA off of that, similar to what happens in our body, for example. But for proteins, it's very different. There is more engineering required to actually get to the right protein. It isn't as easy as decoding something. So for that reason, even if you look at the sequence of timing for some of the vaccine approaches coming out, mRNA was the first one to come over the finish line for both Pfizer, BioNTech, as well as Moderna. The other approach that doesn't take as long as probably somewhere in between mRNA as well as protein is viral vectors. So you have some companies that tried that approach where it probably, and I'm generalizing a little bit, it's probably not as time-consuming as protein, but it's somewhere probably in between. And that's also, I think, what you saw a little bit with the other vaccines. But you can develop viral vaccines also fairly quickly. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I think maybe the general public who doesn't have a scientific background may not be aware of all of these different approaches to vaccines and the possible means for administration and stimulating an immune response, whether to human or veterinary purposes. Can you give a little bit more information about the development of the vaccine? You mentioned that the development time was shorter because you knew the sequence and maybe give a little more information. I think the general public knows that the spike protein is the source or the subject of the mRNA, but just generally what kind of testing goes on starting in the lab 
before it ultimately gets into the human? Great question, Lisa. Typically with vaccines or even therapeutics, you start off with the discovery stage where you try to determine is your target appropriate? So for example, you mentioned this spike. In some cases, there's a lot of published data on this is the right protein to go after or target on the virus. So there's some work that goes into that. There's also identification of the molecule itself and either a chemistry molecule or a biologic, like a antibody, or in this case, mRNA. And then you have some preclinical development where your goal is essentially over here to test the safety and effectiveness as far as possible in either animal models and or cell culture. And depending on the disease, you have a variety of models that are the best for that particular situation. And for mRNA, the COVID vaccine in particular, the reason the time was so condensed, meaning I think it was under a year from the time that the pandemic was declared or even the virus was identified to getting emergency use authorization is a couple of things. We've actually done some work to identify what were the drivers of speed and quality for this vaccine. So number one, I would say there was complete alignment between all the leaders at Pfizer as well as BioNTech on the criticality of this particular vaccine, meaning we knew it was a pandemic and we knew patients were waiting for this. And there was disproportionate effort to make sure that attention was given to this program. So that was number one. The second is we recognize that sometimes at pharma companies, you have some bureaucracy in decision-making and governance, and that could not hold a program of this importance back. So it was a lot of just nimble decision-making with cross-functional teams getting together on a phone, on WebEx, making real-time decisions, aligning, and getting things done. So that was number two. Number three, there was end-to-end planning. So it wasn't just thinking about the next successful milestone, but it was thinking about end-to-end what's needed to get this over the finish line with a strong profile for patients as soon as possible. And that, I think, helped a lot. And lastly, it was a lot of investment, to be frank. And typically, you don't do that for every R&D program because what happens essentially is that you end up with a lot of risks. So, for example, if you start investing in actual supply for large pivotal studies or supply for distribution before you get clinical trial results, If the results are not favorable, there's a huge loss associated with it. But in this case, we felt that the risk was worth it because otherwise you would waste a lot of time if you wait for results and then start manufacturing. So the at-risk investment was absolutely critical as well. The last piece I'll highlight is just tremendous operations that went into this. So for example, on the clinical trial side, I don't think there are many examples or any examples of recruiting patients at this degree of speed. So a lot of work went into thinking about what are the sites you want to recruit patients at? And we ended up with, I think, about 40,000 patients in a matter of months, essentially. And since the endpoint for the clinical study was events, meaning COVID cases, 
you had to make sure that you thought about the clinical trial sites, about where COVID not only is breaking right now, but where it's likely to spike in the future. Because otherwise you're gonna spend longer time waiting for cases to emerge. So that was a great piece of analytical work and all of those drivers collectively, I think, contributed to the speed. Yeah, the story is fascinating, as you said. I mean, with the speed that this was developed, but the experience behind it, no question that that's what led to the ability to do this so quickly. And people like yourself and your team and at some of these other companies, just the experience that you had. And as you mentioned, taking that risk to proceed with large-scale manufacturing before you actually had the final results, knowing that this was a go or no go. So really fascinating. Yeah. I'll also mention, Lisa, that in addition to just management and leadership, I think really kudos should go to the scientists who were going into the lab amid a pandemic when people didn't know how contagious this was, manufacturing colleagues really going in night and day to get this done. So to me, they're top of the list in terms of the credit for this vaccine. And the patients as well, the clinical trial participants, you needed people to actually take a chance and enroll in studies and be part of that scientific process. I would say those are among the top of people to get credit for this. Yeah, absolutely. The people that enrolled for the trials, not only was mRNA technology as far as use in humans knew, but we weren't quite sure about this virus. We knew it was related to the prior coronavirus, but we really didn't know that much about it other than it was so highly infectious. So I stand behind you on that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The scientists and the volunteers, amazing how everyone came together to push this forward. So we've talked about this, I think, in general, but my view has been even among some of my friends, not so much colleagues in the life science industry, but people in other industries or the general public seem to have this impression that mRNA technology is new and there's almost a misconception that the COVID vaccine was rushed and it may not be as safe as other vaccines or drugs that took longer to develop and to be approved. And you mentioned HIV earlier. I've had some friends comment and say, well, if they could do this in a year, why haven't they come up with an HIV vaccine? Can you give the audience some comfort maybe around the misconception? I know you've touched on a lot of it, but given your knowledge of the history of mRNA technology and vaccine development, dismiss this myth that this was rushed in some way. And maybe we can talk at the same time a little bit about this idea of emergency use authorization by the FDA versus FDA approval and that sort of thing. It's a very good question, Lisa. So as I started off in our podcast, mRNA has been in the spotlight for the past year, but it's been decades in the making. It has been the work of so many scientists across the globe to really think about the effectiveness and safety of an mRNA vaccine. So I think it is fair to say that COVID-19 catalyzed its advancement because when you're in a pandemic, the kind of interactions you have with the FDA, it was almost real-time dialogue. And for another disease, 
that didn't require such, that was having this day-by-day impact, you do have typically different timelines and you do have companies prioritizing differently. So it did help, I think, catalyze it. But there's a huge body of evidence in mRNA that preceded this, including in areas like cancer vaccine, where clinical trials were already ongoing even prior to COVID. Regarding HIV, it's an excellent question. And it brings me back also to my graduate school days where that was my goal, to really make a contribution to HIV vaccine development, because I fully agree that it's a key unmet need. And the way I would think about it is that there are two things that need to come together to make an effective mRNA vaccine. One, you have to know the biology of the disease well in order to understand how to make an effective vaccine. And number two, the technology platform like an mRNA has to be at a level where it could help. And for HIV, the challenge is that it's just a brilliant virus. It has evolved such evasion mechanisms to thwart vaccine efforts. It's just a really hard virus to vaccinate against. So for example, it mutates at a very fast rate. So it's constantly a moving target. It also hides very well. So even when you have patients taking, now they're very effective antivirals, they're reservoirs of latent HIV. So it's really hard to get over that. In addition, it shields itself with glycosylation or carbohydrates. So sometimes it gets hard for some of the immune responses to recognize these proteins. And it also targets the very cells that are responsible for mounting an immune response. So HIV essentially targets CD4 T cells, and those are the cells that play a key role in immune responses against the virus. So for all of those reasons, it's a very hard virus to vaccinate against. And what I will say is now with COVID approved for an mRNA vaccine, you're going to see the next wave of vaccines being investigated where the biology is known and it's more a question of trying an mRNA vaccine. But there are also going to be diseases like HIV where you need to strengthen the biology aspect of it. So it is an important challenge, but one that is not, in my opinion, ready to be overcome with just mRNA at this point. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think your point is well taken. Each virus needs to be examined for itself and its biology, its structure, its target within the body, as you said, the CD4 positive cells and that sort of thing. I know we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but now that you've made a couple of comments, I'm curious if maybe back on HIV, if combination therapies might make sense. So you'd have, say, an mRNA vaccine, but in combination with administration of certain cytokines, interleukins, that sort of thing, so that you're coming at it from all sides. So while you're potentially targeting a virus that's invaded the entire immune system, you're trying to stimulate it at the same time. It's a great question, Lisa, and it could be that a multi-pronged approach is needed for HIV. So for example, if you immunize theoretically 
with mRNA encoding multiple proteins, then maybe you decrease your odds that there would be mutations to all of them at the same time. It's the same reason why the cocktail therapeutics that HIV patients get, they include multiple components. So you find that sometimes if the virus mutates against all three of those elements, for example, it does so at the cost of viral fitness. So these therapies have been quite effective, and it could be, as you said, you need a multi-pronged approach to vaccine. The question would be, what are those multiple prongs in order to deliver that? Right. Is there anything else that you'd like to add today or any comments that you wanted to make before we close out? No, just to say that I really enjoyed our discussion, Lisa, and mRNA is one of my favorite topics to kind of opine on. So I hope your audience and you found this helpful. And thanks again for the invitation. Absolutely. And Kathy, I know how busy you are, and we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today to talk about mRNA technology and your background. And I'm sure I speak for those of us listening, but we look forward to seeing what's next, not only for mRNA technology, but for Pfizer as well. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to DLA Pipers at the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not, and should not be used as, a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.